And then as I, as I kind of ran out of this building, there were these small flowers on the ground. I remember running past them. And I remember, you know, for whatever reason in my head, I imagined these flowers were like these children that had been in this barrack. And I kind of stopped and I went back and I photographed one of these flowers because I thought, you know, I should do this because this flower is like a child. And then I walked away again and I stopped again and I thought, how can I do this? I remember this really clearly thinking, how can I walk away from these children? I have to photograph every single one of these children. And obviously these were just small flowers on the ground, but to me, they represented these children. So I went back and I remember photographing very manically every single flower on the ground, you know, like 70, 80 photographs around and I felt that the act of making that photograph, more than the photograph itself, was, was my way to remember each one of these children. That's just a clip from an incredibly moving part of today's episode with documentary photographer Mark Wilson. Hello, my name is Graham Dargie. Welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast, where we trace the journeys of remarkable photographers from around the world. This week, we revisit a memorable conversation from 2021 with Mark Wilson. Before we dive in, I hope I find you well. I'm back to work after some well-earned time off over Christmas and New Year, and uh, it's been busy. I started the year with a day of corporate photography in Glasgow, and it's been non-stop ever since. If you want to follow what I'm getting up to, find me on Instagram at viewfinderspodcast. And if you really dig the show, why not drop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? And to sweeten the deal, if you do that, I'll read it out on the show. How about that? Okay, no long intro today. Let me introduce this week's guest, documentary photographer Mark Wilson. Mark's book, A Wounded Landscape, bears witness to the Holocaust through the stories of 22 survivors. It was shot over six years at 160 locations throughout Europe and features over 350 photographs. We talk in depth about the challenges and sensitivities around the work, the importance of continuing to talk about the Holocaust, how the process of making this work has affected Mark and some of the experiences he had along the way. Of all the conversations I've had on the podcast, this one feels like it's the most meaningful and I'm really glad to have the opportunity to share it with you again today. Here's my conversation with Mark Wilson. Hi Mark, welcome to the podcast. How's things? Uh, very good, thanks Graham. How are you doing? Yeah, good thanks. Really grateful for your time Mark because I've, I've seen your work around for a while and I was really intrigued by it. It's not the kind of thing like that I, I do, you know, with the documentary work. And I was just really interested to talk to you. And the more I looked into your work, the more I kind of uncovered. Um, and you cover some kind of big topics or big themes mm-hmm. in the work. So it's not like for me, I can, I'm can i quite happy going out and doing nice pictures of nice places. But with you, it's a, it's, a, it's another one, more layers of depth than that. So I'm really interested to talk yeah. to you about that. But I also discovered uh, you're a commercial photographer shooting really good architecture and interiors, which is right up my street and portraits as well so plenty to talk about but um i like to start at the start so do you remember uh the first time when photography really came into your life um yeah i was that's funny enough i was talking um to son about this just a few days ago i'd always for a lot of my life i i thought it was a kind of almost happy accident that i studied sociology um in edinburgh a degree and then i was sat in the meadows after that and i was kind of thinking what do i like doing and i thought oh, i like taking pictures and it kind of you know went from there 
but I I then remember that I've forgotten something. It's really really kind of much more much more lyrical and beautiful memory, um, which is when I was about eight years old, and I was uh, lucky enough on a family holiday in Portugal with uh, my family and a, a friend of my dad's family as well, and we were sat around uh, a table in the evening at a restaurant by the sea, and the dad of, of my my father's friends he brought out this camera which was a polaroid camera didn't kind of know at the time um and i remember he took a picture of us and this strange sheet of white paper appeared out of the base of the camera and he then laid it against this uh, kind of like wicker basket filled with a wine bottle and over the next 30 45 seconds this image appeared on this wicker basket of all of us including myself and i remember just being simply amazed by it you know how mm. um, not amazed that there's a photograph because obviously we all knew about photographs you know parents making you stand there for hours trying to you know, take a picture with a lens cap on etc but it was the first time i'd seen a polaroid and the first time i'd seen an image appear in front of my eyes and i remember it being a, at that moment thinking that's really beautiful and then probably forgot about it completely but it's i've always liked the idea that i'd kind of that photographic memory came through recall about 25 30 years later so that's the first moment that i guess photography touched me in that way mm-hmm and then from from there, when did you start to pick up the camera yourself? Um, well, I mean, like, you know, like yeah, most kids, I, I had like a Kodak Instamatic. Most kids of my age anyway, mm-hmm. Kodak Instamatic. And yeah, and took pictures with them and stuff like that. But the, it was kind of really more whilst I was at university doing my sociology degree that I became more interested in making images. Mm-hmm. And then my dissertation was about image creation in public surface advertising. So I really kind of started looking at the way images are used and thinking kind of more coherently about creating images you know, as opposed to just taking. Um, and then there was the you know the completion of my sociology degree and sat in the meadows wondering what do I do and the, I love taking pictures, I should do that kind of moment. And it was simple as well, I'll put a portfolio together and I applied to Napier, which was uh, Napier Polytechnic at the time. Um, and I did the first year of my photography degree there and was then going to get a transfer to Edinburgh Art College to carry on my degree. Um, which I got a place there, but then decided I wanted to go back to London, which is where I was from, and got a transfer to LC, well, LCP as it was, or LCC now. And um, then took a year off and kind of worked as an assistant a couple of times, realised I wanted to go back to college mm-hmm. after, after that experience, um, and then did my photography degree and then did an MA after that as well. Okay. So with the... I was just wondering, you know, those days when you were sh- when you got into photography, it's, this is mm-hmm. in the film era, I guess. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you still had the same wonder about the darkroom process as you did about the Polaroid thing, where you see. The- yeah, yeah. Every um, every kind of new process that I came across was that same kind of wonder. So, you know, it was um, it it was before I went to college. So. Um, before I started photography, I started processing my own work, mm-hmm. um, which was basically to, you know to make a portfolio and, and just to make images. Um, so I kind of bought myself an old, um, an old enlarger um, and some trays, and in my toilet in my rented flat, mm-hmm. and, then, and then my bathroom in my rented flat. Um, you know, set up a darkroom, and it really was that moment of wonder that people talk about when the first piece of paper that wasn't fogged by turning the light on by mistake. <laughs> you know, the first piece of paper went it went in the developing tray. And then an image just appeared out of it. And it was amazing. I remember the image really well. It was of, um, I'd been back down in London taking some photographs down in Chelsea Harbour before it was kind of all uh, beautified. And there was, I think, an old shopping trolley in the river or something, something like that. Um, But it was seeing this image appear out of the paper 
and it was magical and it was as magical a moment as that seeing that first polaroid you know when i was an eight-year-old boy as well yeah and i think every every part of the photographic process however uh, convoluted and complicated and uh, ex experienced and experimented with is, is a kind of wonderful process and to be honest i, I haven't lost that i am um, it kind of you know you go through lots of different stages of the way that you make photographs mm -hmm. but i you know with my project work i remember every single photograph that i've taken in you know not literally every click but i, I don't actually take that many pictures i i almost try to take as few pictures as possible because mm -hmm. i like to spend as long as possible making each frame but I can look at, you know, any picture in my book and whether it's The Last Stand or, you know, Travelogue or the, the new book, The Indian Landscape. And I can remember the moment I pressed the button. I can remember the um, the sounds around me and I can remember what the weather was like. And I can remember the feeling and the emotion and stuff like that. So it's, there's, I think, you know, photography for me, for me, has that real kind of connection, mm -hmm. um, a connection of a conversation between myself and uh, either who I'm speaking with or who I'm listening to or the landscape that I'm in and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's, I, I have the same feeling actually most photographs I, I would look at especially the ones that are, are good ones mm -hmm. you, you can go right back to there I can they're definitely the ones that I show I'm 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 with you exactly the same it takes me right back to the moment um I was wondering about your early photography was it a documentary style that you were interested in at the time or what kind of way were you shooting um, when well, you were studying when you say early how early oh, when I was studying yeah I thought you know I, I think like like most students I was kind of photographing a, a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of everything with them at first with no particular direction you know it was a combination of photographing what my lecturers asked me to photograph mm -hmm. and then at the same time trying to photograph the exact opposite of what my lecturers asked me to photograph because they'd asked me to photograph one thing in particular um you know I, I think generally I I didn't like the idea of being told that I had to learn a particular technique whilst working, whilst making photographs. So I generally um, practiced the technique element, you know, lighting, for instance, as little as possible whilst making what I thought was some interesting images and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I remember, you know, many kind of cliched images of, kind of chicken carcasses and things, <laughs> things like that, you know, in my early, early days at Napier, which weren't particularly interesting. And I, I do remember my first year making one photograph of... Um, um, down at the um, the bottom of Newtown, I think there was a moon and there was a small stream involved. And I remember someone saying, oh, you know, Mark, wow, that's amazing. I can really see why why you're here now. And I remember I didn't like the picture at all because mm -hmm. it just felt sort of, even at that stage, it felt overly romantic mm -hmm. to me. And it felt like it didn't have any content to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think from the very outset of my kind of making photographs, there was always interest in, for me in creating an image or capturing an image that had content and had something to it but it then took me you know sort of 15 20 years to really find my voice working through various projects until I knew not necessarily what I wanted to talk about but how I wanted to say it mm -hmm. so um you know until I found my language in that way yeah that's a, that's really interesting um so and when you went to do photography to study photography you'd already done sociology so you're you're not you know fresh out of school um, so it, it's interesting that you're already, you kind of knew what, I mean, if you knew what you wanted to do, but you weren't just taking the kind of yeah. um, drip feeding from the lecturers. You, you already had some kind of sense of direction about your purpose and why you were there. And I think that had a, a positive and negative that it's, 
you know, it, it pushed me and it, I, I, I didn't need pushing to make work in a way mm-hmm. because I wanted to make it. Yeah. But it also made me feel as though I don't need to learn that. I don't need to learn this. Yeah. And, and I still think I, you know, I could, you know, I could have more technical knowledge if I'd listened more to my, my first year lectures at Napier, for instance. But, I, you know, I've, I've managed. <laughs> so, so. Yeah. But, you know, the technical knowledge was only get you so far. Exactly. I'm a yeah. believer in technical knowledge. I think you need to have it and it empowers you, no doubt. But you need more than that. And it seems like you were already into that understanding of it's not just about the, the, the buttons and the dials, you know. The other thing I want to pick up on there was that you took you sort of 15, 20 years, you'd said to to really get into, maybe get into, find who you are as a photographer, maybe if I'm putting words in your mouth. But um, I think that's amazing, really. I find that it sounds like from the front end that that's a long time to to really find what you want to do. But from from my stage, you know, I've been at it since the sort of nineties as well. Um, I find that really encouraging because you it, you're always growing. I think, and I I feel like I'm at a stage where I'm at a bit of a crossroads photography wise. I can do what I do, but I want to do more, and I I don't think I, I'm not content to just go through continuing to do what I've always done, um, and so. The idea that you can continue to develop and actually find your thing after a long way deep into this journey, I think it's really encouraging. I yeah. was I was thinking about it about um, um, artists, uh, musicians in the seventies. They might I've heard this. They might have got like two or three albums to really find themselves. Nowadays, they get like one or two singles, and if it's not working, they're out. You know, but yeah. sometimes it just takes that much time to to really find your groove, right? Yeah, completely. It's, you know, to me, it's about um, the, the time it's taken hasn't so much, it's not about what I wanted to say, but it's about how I've been able to say it. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you know, the work that I'm just completing now, which is uh, based around 22 Holocaust stories, um, I've wanted, you know, as, as I've told in interviews and discussions about that particular work, I've wanted to make a piece of work about that subject matter for the last 20 years as well. Mm-hmm. But I've never felt as a photographer I was able to do it properly until about six years ago. Mm-hmm. so it's it's kind of been you know i've always known that what i want to speak about um but it's taken that time to discover and you know and mature my mm-hmm. kind of photographic language so that i can now speak about these the type of subjects that i do in a in a way that fits the subject matter mm-hmm. and in the way that the subject needs mm-hmm. so as opposed to um you know it's it's not a question of me finding a, a photographic style it's not mean because you know i, I didn't think my pictures were cool enough or you know they weren't exciting enough, or they were obviously not. You know, technicals got nothing to do with it. It's very much about me finding a, a way of working that suits the subject matter that I like to talk about. And for me, that's you know that way of working is a kind of subtle, sensitive, soft approach mm-hmm. in that way. And it just happens to take that time. But you know, there's also um, you know it, it's it's quite romantic to think that it took me 20 years of living in a garret <laughs> finding my style. But, you know, the first 10 years of that was, you know, I spent working in bars, getting kind of drunk as well, you know, <laughs> enjoying life, um, doing bits of teaching and, you know, selling some prints and stuff like that. So it's the, the journey, you know, it's there's that, I probably shouldn't say this, bit, but the journey's definitely got that romantic edge to it, I guess. Yeah. But it's also got that, you know, realistic edge that I was, you know, I'd done my degrees and my MA and, you know, I just wanted to enjoy my life for a period. So I, I probably could have been doing everything 10 years earlier than I had, but, you know, I'm happy with where I am, so... I wanted to start uh, to pick up on the first strand of your work um, as the last stand. 
I'll let you introduce and describe this for people listening who may not know what that is. Yeah, so The Last Stand is a piece of work I made between 2010 and 2014. And it looks at a collection of the remaining, some of the remaining collections, some of the remaining military coastal defences around Northern Europe. So it includes the coastline of the United Kingdom, sort of England, Scotland, uh, some Wales as well, and then all along the northern coast of Europe, so from Norway down to the Franco-Spanish border in that way. And the idea behind this work was um, to create one, a collection of images, um, but not simply look at the objects themselves, not simply look at these military defences, but to step back from them and very much look at how they sit in the environment today and how they sit within the landscape and you know, photograph today, photographing today these objects that were made 75, 80 years ago and really, you know, studying through photography how these two elements have combined. So how the man-made element has combined with the, the natural landscape around it and, you know, how one or the other has taken over in that way and how the, the man-made elements have become subsumed and consumed in some, in some cases by the environment around it. Um, and when I started making that work, I wasn't really thinking about the stories necessarily, you know, the individual stories behind these vocations. But I was interested in the historical research element as well. So the work is kind of heavily researched in terms of each individual location as well. So it's 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 obviously visually not a chocolate box pictures. Um, it's not simply a recording of these objects, you know, in isolation. But it's the objects within the landscape, but also framing the kind of 75, 80 years of time and coastal erosion. Mm-hmm. But also the history that are kind of, and you know the facts that underlie, you know, and the, the building methods, etc., that underlie these images in that way. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about the research that you did for this because I, I, I was thinking this would be a research-heavy kind of project. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, of course. Research is, it, it's a kind of double, maybe double-edged sword in a way, but um, it's really important to my work. But at the same time, I try not to get too bogged down in it initially uh, I think it's quite easy to um, I was talking to some students about this the other day that you know research is an incredibly important element to give background and to give you know, context etc but it's quite easy sometimes to get stuck in your research and end up using that as an excuse to not make work mm-hmm. in some ways you know so what, what I find I, I generally like to work is I do some upfront research to kind of give me an overview of the subject um, you know and adding to the knowledge that I already have of the subject in, in other cases. Um, and then take that research and then start, start the photographic process quite early on as well. So I can see how the two things connect. I can see how the, you know, the, the photographs that I can potentially make fit the knowledge that I'm gaining and the research that I want to you know, give to the reader and the viewer in that way. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, the research is up front and then testing, photographic testing comes with it. And you know, visual research as well as you know, written research. Um, and then the research continues as I make the work in that way. So I don't do all the research up front. You know, I don't, I don't, I didn't for the last stand, for instance, I didn't research 100, 120 locations and then go and photograph them. I researched two or three locations, went to those first locations, made work, didn't actually use those locations in the book because it didn't kind of work in that way, but then found more, re- you know, did more overall research, found more locations, went to those locations, photographed them, and then the two kind of things went hand in hand in that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was going to ask about that, about how the 
idea for the project came to you if it became like a fully formed thing or if you had to start and then kind of it would unfold and show itself to you is it a bit more like that yeah it was um the, the kind of the overall you know the nugget of the concept of the work came you know was there with me it came from a previous project i'd done um which, which had small elements of this kind of you know um historical coastal military defenses in it and it's something that I wanted to expand upon because I thought it was it was a subject that was of interest um, both visually and you know kind of research point of view. Mm-hmm. So um, it was very much that do some research, make some work, and look at the images I was making and see if, from a visual point of view, they would be visually interesting and visually enticing, and would they be strong enough would, with the objects themselves, the landscapes, and then the way I photographed it? Would that be strong enough to keep people interested? And to make people want to, in the case of a book, then turn a page mm-hmm. to look at another one, another one. And, you know, it was the, the testing was almost to see that once you take one photograph, would that be enough? And was there any point to take another photograph? You know, would I end up just repeating myself over 80, 90, 100 photographs in yeah. that way? So it was kind of you know, the research went alongside that, that visual experimentation in that way. Mm-hmm. But it was also about how I could make the work, you know, what what visual method I could use to photograph these objects, these landscapes that would tell these stories or show, you know, represent or show this historical research in, in the way that I thought was right. Yeah. And so the way you shoot the locations, it's often in this kind of very soft light, kind of misty conditions. You said that's a, that's a choice. Um, so, and that's a way for you to communicate the, the passing of time. What is that really saying in the images? Um, yeah, I mean the the you know the everything photography you know the choice, obviously. Um, but that as well for me, you know, that that's a really important choice because that dictates the look of the images. Uh, one thing I've you know, and I've I've always known this, and this is just my you know my way of working. Um, other people you know can work in totally the opposite way, and that's what works for them. But I never, I think, because of the subjects I approach, I never feel the need to add um, power and contrast. With my with my images to the subject, because you know the the subjects that I'm talking about and the stories I'm telling have plenty of power mm-hmm. and um, contrast, you know, trauma, tragedy, history contained within them already. So you know I feel my job as a photographer is to represent them in a in a, a kind of historically but also you know a humanistic way, um, in a way that's kind of sensitive and soft and subtle. So for the last stand, I wanted to you know choose you know because you, you can choose you know even if you're working outside you choose the light you want to work on mm-hmm. the conditions um so i wanted to choose the conditions that would allow would help me create a softer more sensitive more subtle imagery that wouldn't shout and scream at you you know i didn't need to add anything i didn't need to add contrast from the sun and shadows i didn't need to add any extra lighting i didn't need to i didn't need to add anything i just needed to <clears throat> And it wasn't, you know, it's not a case that I thought I just have to show things exactly as they are because, you know, I chose to shoot them in softer grey light. So it's very different to how it is on a blue sky day. But Mm -hmm. that's the kind of palette that I chose so that the images wouldn't be shouting. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was also the idea that because I knew I was going to, you know, I was creating a series of work of, in some cases, similar looking objects. um, I wanted to create this, you know, quite um, singular look throughout the work so that no image would look visually too different from the other because of the lighting conditions mm-hmm. so they were all very um very planned mm-hmm. <laughs> the images you know in terms of lots of reccees to to know um when was the best time in terms of tides you know with the height of the water when there was that involved 
and then always get those tie times as early as I could in the morning. And that was for two reasons. It was one, because I didn't want people in the images, um, and also to have the softest light possible. You know, I, I really like, you know, with that project, I really like the light that you get 10 or 15 minutes if you're lucky when the sun hasn't really come up over the horizon completely, mm -hmm. you know, or there's clouds at the bottom of the horizon or some mountains sometimes, but you have enough light. So there's no direct light. So you don't get those contrasts and things. But then I, you know, I took that stage further that I'd, I'd look if possible for gray flat skies, you know, to kind of have that sing singular tone. Um, and if there's mist and fog, even better, because mm -hmm. it just helps, you know, kind of push that across. Yeah, I would just, I was thinking you would love Aberdeen because it's grey flat skies all the time. Oh, um, yeah, so, you know, the work I did up there was fantastic. <laughs> I, loved it. I was looking at, looking at one yesterday um, at the beach at Many, if that's the right way to pronounce it. And, yeah. you know, but, but that was amazing. You know, this, this is the idea we were going back to, remembering every photo you take. Yeah. You know, that one I, I remember, you know, doing a recce, and it was like in summer, so it was, I was trying to shoot at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, 4.30 in the morning. And I'd done my recce the evening before and I remember having to kind of break out of the hotel because they had locked the front door when they said they wouldn't lock the front okay. door. And then, you know, it's covered in mist and everything and it's beautiful and it's exactly as I wanted it. But then about 10 minutes after I'd made my, I made two frames up there, 10 minutes after I made those frames, you know, the sea mist just disappeared and you had bright blue skies and bright yellow sand. Mm. And the image was completely different mm -hmm. and it would have looked a bit more like a chocolate box kind of picture, you know. Yeah. So that that kind of element of, controlling the uncontrollable you know controlling the natural light which you know you can do by the time you know when you're going to photograph things is, is a wonderful thing to be able to do i think it takes lots of patience and it's why it took four years to make that work because i you know i had multiple trips where i drive through the mist and fog to the coast for it to lift mm. you know 100 yards before i arrived there and stuff like that so yeah that's okay yeah i'm glad you've spoken about that because I, I was going to ask about the um just the logistics of it because it's so many locations and to get it just in the right conditions it's not it's planned as you say and every it's not a guarantee that you'll get that um so it shows you must have been quite tenacious to really see that through uh, and you're working commercially presumably at the same time and maybe family life and things it's not an easy thing to pull off i don't think no it's, it's hard so um yeah you know like i kind of mentioned i think this is why it took four years because there was a lot of waiting um a lot of planning. You know, in general, I would always try and photograph under the conditions I wanted as much as possible. Mm. For the locations in the UK, that was a lot easier because you could, you know, you could look at the weather and based on when, you know, I had a diary of when, when the when the tides were going to be right, etc., etc. The times were going to be right, and if I knew the next the next day or the next two days it'd be right, you know, I could, if I didn't have a commercial shoot on, etc., I could drive and I could do my recce the evening before. And then wake up early the next morning, and you know, I'd always just stay stay in the, the cheapest kind of hotel or B and B I could find. Um, so the planning was done kind of on the on the hoof as it was, mm -hmm. and then make my work and then drive home. You know, or sometimes I'd have a little trip around the UK because you you know you're going to have bad weather for weeks on end, which is great. Um, whereas the work on the continent was a touch harder because, like you know, you could leave it as late as possible, but you couldn't always book a flight the next day because of expense no more than anything so i'd kind of with the with the with the continental work i would plan a bit more in advance but still as as close as possible to the time mm -hmm. you, know, for, you know to get those weather conditions um and then yeah in terms of combining it with commercial work it's um i was quite lucky at the time with a lot of my commercial customers that they would always ask me when i'm available as opposed to mark we have to shoot it on this day or that day um mm -hmm. so you know i would it, it was it was a juggling act of those things and then obviously as you mentioned kind of mixing family in as well and stuff like that so kind of juggling those three things mm -hmm. together and 
I'm not sure I dropped the boards on a few occasions. But yeah, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> that happens. And so, when did that be- really become a book? I mean, how far into the process was it that you thought, "Well, this is a book," or did someone approach you, or how did that go? With that work, it didn't start off as a you know the, the book wasn't on my mind when I started the work. It was you know more for exhibition. Um, so I started that work in 2010, and the the idea was to it was at first to kind of cover you know UK and in Europe, and then you know because of finances, it was kind of mostly UK. And I then I did like a Kickstarter campaign to fund the making of the work. So I put you know that that project was funded kind of 50% through a kick through two Kickstarter campaigns, and the other 50% through my commercial work that I kind of put into the work in that way. Um, and then as I made the work about halfway through, and then I did the second Kickstarter campaign to get extra funding so I could, you know, cover the European locations as well. It was at that time that I started thinking, what once I'd seen, you know, 30, 40 images together and started doing more of the research, it was at that moment that I realised that this, not could, but should be in book form as well. Because, you know, a book a book is a completely different vehicle to an exhibition, you know, and it's a completely difficult vehicle to an online experience, etc. And not every work should be a photo book automatically, which I think a lot of people, you know, it's a, it's a mistake maybe that people make. Um, but so it was about halfway through that I realised it should be a book in that way, mm-hmm. which was kind of nice because, you know, we, we, as a photographer, you know what an exhibition will look like, but a book kind of helps you really focus it. And it's, <coughs> excuse me, um, there involves much more critical editing, editing process mm-hmm. you know, in book form as well, and stuff like that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. about halfway through the work. Mm-hmm. And how has it been received? It seems like it's been received well because you've sold out a couple of editions of the book. Uh, I was wondering if that surprised you at all and what other opportunities might have opened up as a result of the reception to the work. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it was the first book um, that I'd, I'd had published. Um, and the first two editions were made by a publisher. Um, and then the third edition, the third edition reprint as well, um, have been self-published, those two, because it, you know, because it sells so well. Um, you know, I, I didn't have a kind of concept of how many numbers you should or would or potentially could sell, mm. you know, a photo book. You find that soon enough, you know, and general photo books seem to sell maybe 300 or 800 or 500 or 800 or something like that. Um, you know, and some go to a second edition, etc. And this one sold well, you know, the first edition sold through the publisher, sold that very quickly. And they, that was about 800 copies, 850 copies. Um, and then the publisher made a second edition again of about 850 copies. And that sold quite well at first and then, you know, it seemed to slow down. Um, and then it was after about two years of that second edition coming out that I, um, um, I then kind of got the rights back to uh, and bought kind of, the, the, you know, some of the remaining, I think, 200 copies of the second edition from the publisher myself. And I sold them all in about a month. Right. Um, and it was at that point that I realised there was there was still a lot of interest. Because, you, know, you know, I was always, you know, that I'd had quite a number of exhibitions and there was always kind of you know, little interviews and articles about the work. And it wasn't just at the time of its launch, but it seemed to kind of carry on, you know, throughout that period. So the, the work was, the first book was launched in uh, 2014. And so by 2017, 18, this was still going on really well. So that's why I then chose to um, kind of self-publish the third edition of the book myself, which was completely redesigned with the designer, um, you know, totally different print, you know, different sizing, some new images, etc. And I did that third edition in uh, 2000, where are we now? 2020. Um, and, you know, I was, I wanted to do a third edition because, because I wanted to see that process of self-publishing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also wanted to make the third edition slightly different. I wanted 
to make it a bit smaller. Um, I was going to make it as a paperback book. Um, I was going to print about 150 copies. Um, and then I started doing pre-sales and the pre-sales kind of went, you know, to 50, to 100, to 150, to 200. And then by the time the pre-sales went to about 300, 400, I was doing proofs and tests with my designer. We were going to print digitally and we, we kind of realized that digital printing didn't work for this particular book. You know, digital printing is wonderful, but not for these images and the type of skies, etc. we have it. So we wanted to print it litho. So that meant printing kind of 400 books minimum. But I'd already pre-sold 400 books. Um, and then we went from soft cover to hard cover because I'd suddenly felt inside myself that a soft cover wasn't good enough for this mm -hmm. and it needed to be a hard cover and the size went back up a little bit and stuff like that. And then it ended up like thinking, well, we're going to print 500 copies and the pre-sales kept going well. So we went to print 750 copies. And then I just um, took a punt and thought I'll print a thousand instead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of people told me I was crazy and that I'd, I'd sit here with like piles and piles of books for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> this was the third edition, you know. Um, but the, that third edition sold out in about two months, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, which was a, a thousand copies. So by that point, the book had sold uh, like 2,000 um, 800 or 2,900 copies by that point, um, you know, which is great, obviously. And then because that third edition so did so well, we made a reprint of the third edition. So it's it's not a fourth edition because it's basically a reprint with a slightly different paper color on the front. And that's going really well. And we printed a thousand of those as well, and um, sold about half of those so far. So it's it's done really well as a photo book. It's sold, um, you know, like. 3,400 copies hmm. and it's it's still going which yeah. is great you know and I, I still have articles about it and you know every week I'm down the post office sending you know sort of 15 20 copies of the book which is which is really nice so it's there's obviously something about it you know which, which people people like um it's work that I went through a period between the second and third edition so kind of 2017 18 where I was I actually got very bored of talking about it and I felt I had nothing else to say about it you know someone would ask me about the last hand and I say I don't know anymore. <laughs> Let's talk about my new work. But as you can tell now, I'm very happy talking about it. It's, it's kind of given it a new lease of life for me, which is really nice. I really wanted to talk about a wounded landscape. And obviously, it seems like thematically, um, The Last Stand leads into that. I wondered how a wounded landscape came up for you did it just kind of spin off of the other work you were doing or how did that come up in your radar um so yes as i kind of mentioned before it's it wasn't a, a continuation um from a subject matter point of view it's it's a piece of work or you know a subject that i've i've wanted to make as a photographer and you know as a human being much more importantly i've I wanted to make a piece of work about it and wanted to talk about it and discuss it for 20, 25 years. Um, but I never felt as a photographer, I never felt I had that right language. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know how to make photographs that could talk about the subject in the way that the subject needed, um, both from a, a technical visual point of view, but from a kind of conceptual theoretical point of view as well. And then after I completed The Last Stand, so when The Last Stand finished in 2014, you know, I was kind of looking at the book and looking at the work and because it had that kind of soft, sensitive sort of subtlety to it, I thought that maybe um, I'd now had that right language. You know, maybe I could make a, a piece of work about the Holocaust um, using the kind of imagery and the, the, the direction of imagery that I'd created with The Last Stand and that I, I finally had that voice. Um, so I kind of felt that as a photographer, I was sort of visually mature enough to now make a piece of work about the subject matter. Um, 
which is really exciting. And, and I remember I went down to, I had lots of conversations with family and some friends about potentially making this work. And, you know, some family kind of tried to not put me off making the work, but almost put me off to make me really realize what I was going to discover. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, you know, I had a family member who, who works with a lot of Holocaust survivors in Switzerland and France, and she she helps kind of bring them to schools. So they can teach to, you know, talk to children and you know, discuss these events, etc. Um, but we went through these conversations, and whilst they were almost trying to put me off making the work, I knew what they were really doing was just preparing me. You know, mm-hmm. for, for what I would potentially discover. And I still didn't know the particular direction I was going to make. But I ended up um, down in the southwest of France in a place called Riesalt, which is quite near Perpignan, um, to a very specific location, which was an old uh, Second World War internment camp. And this was a location that was spoken to me about by my cousin in Switzerland who works with Holocaust survivors. And I had quite, quite a set idea of how I was going to make the work and it was very much based about the last stand. Um, and I took a 5.4 camera with me, and I took a medium format camera with me, and a, a 35 mm digital camera as well. And you know, I was going to, and I kind of did my research, you know, about the history of the location, obviously, but also about the the landscape. And I was going to find the highest ground I could find, and photograph this camp, this object, as I saw it at the time, within the landscape. So very similar to what I was going to photograph the last stand. And I kind of, you know, got in my rental car and drove and found a hill and walked up a hill with all these various cameras. And what before I'd even set my 5.4 up, I knew that it was wrong. Um, I knew that I didn't want to set this large camera on a tripod up and put a hood over my head and gaze at this landscape, you know, in that very obviously objective way um, for me. So I shot some work or made some work with my medium format film camera that I had with me as well. And I also made some work with my 35mm digital camera with me so I could see it immediately at the time. And then I went back to um, went back to my B&B for the night and I kind of looked at the work that I'd made. And I'd never, I'd, you know, the whole last hour was all shot in film so I never had that, you know, I didn't shoot Polaroid at the time. So I never had that that option to look at work as I was making it. But, I, you know, with 5.4 you, you take one picture, you know what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um so I made work of this kind of old internment camp from a distance, you know, with the landscape surrounding it, it was kind of modern urban industrial landscape around it. And then I looked at these photographs that night and they left me completely cold. Um, they were wrong in every, every possible way that a picture of this subject matter could be wrong as far as I was concerned. You know, they were, they were beautiful images and the light was soft and beautiful. Um, and it was a, an interesting landscape to look at. And there was this object within the landscape, but it felt, it felt completely objective. You know, it felt like I was a voyeur in a way. It felt like I was standing behind a screen, a glass screen, looking at a diorama in a in a museum. Um, and I knew that it wouldn't work that way. And I, you know, I remember sitting in that that B and B, and it was this lovely little French B and B. And I was really disappointed because I got so excited over the last six months at the thought of finally being able to make that, this work that I wanted to for so long, that I had this language, and I was really disappointed with myself. I thought, well, I can't do this. This will be a, a waste of my time for the next, you know, two. Three, I thought at the time, two or three years. Um, mm. But at the same time, I knew what I had to do as well. I knew what I wasn't doing, and I knew that the thing I wasn't doing um, was the thing I had to do, which was to go into this location, you know, because I had very purposefully stood outside it and not gone over those that kind of metaphorical barrier mm-hmm. to, to to really become engaged with the history of this location. And in this case, there was an actual barrier. There was like a four or five meter earthwork that was built around the whole site. Um, 
And so I remember the next morning, I got up early and I walked and I climbed up over this barrier and I hurt my knee playing football a few months before it, so it wasn't, it wasn't that great an idea. You know, and I went up and over this barrier and into this site. And um, there was a very specific location I was looking for within this site as well, um, which was a, an area called K-12, like a barrack, K-12. And this was a barrack where children had been kept. And so these were Jewish children that had been taken from various parts of France and they were kept in this internment camp in the southwest of France. And the children had been separated from their parents. And I'd been told the story of this Swiss Red Cross worker that had gone there to try and, and she had been allowed access to try and you know, help and to make the children's lives a bit better and that she had brought paints with her and that they had painted scenes on the walls, which you could still see potentially. So I spent about an hour and a half walking around this site you know, making the odd photograph, but really looking for this one barrier. And um, I know this barrack, excuse me, and then I found it and I kind of walked in and it was, you know, the roof had collapsed and one of the walls had disappeared. So it was a bit like a, you can imagine in terms of size, like a school classroom in the UK, like a bit of three-sided school classroom with no, with no roof, mm-hmm. surrounded by other similar structures in the big open wide landscape with a kind of wind farm next to it, um, you know, and certain the village nearby in the town. Um, and I remember walking through and there was this kind of snaking path through the broken roof tiles on the floor that had been made, man-made, obviously, to get there. And I discovered why later on. Um, and you can still see some of those pictures and those paintings on the walls. And this, you know, these were made in 1942, 1943, etc. So, you know, this is, my quick math is like 80-odd years ago. And you can still see these beautiful ch- children-painted faded scenes of, like, sapin, you know, like um, pine trees in the hills and a train going through a tunnel and a boat on the ocean. And they're incredibly faded, but you can see them. And it was amazing, you know, to, to be there and a really kind of touching moment to know that these paintings were done by the hands of these children at this mm-hmm. time. Um, and then I remember that at one point in my foot, I was wearing these boots and my left boot stepped on one of these tiles that I was walking through. And it made this incredible kind of crack sound. And it's what I always imagined it'd be like in St. Paul's Cathedral if you shouted, you know, the Whispering Gallery, which I've never been to. But if you shouted loudly, it would just like take over the whole space. And so there I was in this kind of three-sided, no-roof building in a wide-open plain with this massive screen. Mm. Because to me, you know, symbolism and such, it it felt like the screams of these children. And I practically ran out along this snaking path. And I found out later that the snaking path had been made by the French Secret Service because they used to use this as a training ground. Luckily, not on the day that I was there. So my research hadn't been that good, obviously. Um, and then new people went there. And then as I, as I kind of ran out of this building, there were these small flowers on the ground. I remember running past them. And I remember, you know, for whatever reason in my head, I imagined these flowers were like these children that had been in this barrack. And I kind of stopped and I went back and I photographed one of these flowers because I thought, I, you know, I should do this because this flower is like a child. And then I walked away again and I stopped again and I thought, how can I do this? I remember this really clearly thinking, how can I walk away from these children? I have to photograph every single one of these children. Mm. And obviously these were just small flowers on the ground, but to me, they represented these children. So I went back and and up until this moment, my work had always been very considered, and very slow and tripod based, etc. But I remember photographing very manically every single flower on the ground, you know, like 70, 80 photo- photographs. Mm. And I felt that the act of making that photograph, more than the photograph itself, but the very act of making that photograph was was my way to remember each one of these children. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking at the time how amazing it would be if I could meet one of these children as well. And that did happen four years, you know, mm-hmm. four years later, in fact, for that. But it was kind of a, it was, it was then when I went beyond and then I made some more work around that landscape. But it was really that moment and then conversations when I came home with some other people about 
that the work really formed a direction that, you know, I, I still knew the visual language, you know, had to be soft and sensitive, but not simply wanting to talk about those children that I'd come across in this internment camp in the southwest of France, but I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to tell stories of people at times. So I wanted to tell and talk about, um, you know, because the, the, the history's been told before, obviously, but to talk about the history and to talk about the, the individual experience of a small number of people at mm -hmm. that time. And in doing so, each each experience, each story I tell would be a reflection of, you know, 10 or 100 or 1,000 or a million other people. Because yeah. um, I remember thinking, you know, that those those children that you know and I had at the time I had a four-year-old boy you know well, three and a half year old boy you know when I was at that location and uh, you know I knew very well that the children in that location were the same age of him so I remember very clearly putting those two things together and realizing that each of these people that were involved in this history you know the victims of this history the people who either survived or were murdered um they were exactly like me mm -hmm. or exactly like my child or you know, like yourself mm -hmm. And that they all had parents and they all had sisters or brothers or aunts or uncles. And so that they were all like us and we were all like them in that way. Um, you know, the, the perpetrators as well. And so that's what I kind of realised I had to do, that I had to start telling these stories. So that's how the work kind of came about. So I had no set number of stories. I had no kind of specific locations I wanted to visit. I'd done, you know, prior to this first visit to this place in the southwest of France, I'd made research and I had a map at home and I had a number of dots, you know, like 80 dots on a map of Europe mm -hmm. that I wanted to visit these locations, but there was no specific connection between them. Mm -hmm. And so what I found is that through these stories and through discovering these stories, it created this kind of spider's web of a map of connections. So each story, whilst being individual, was connected within itself from this location to that location to that location. And then you'd soon see that the next story you come across, you know, without realising it, is connected to that first story mm -hmm. or perhaps the fourth story the fifth story but so they end up so you know and i and so we, we've ended up with 22 stories and not because that was a particular number i was looking for but that's what i what i came across and that's the number of stories that found me or were given to me mm -hmm. in that way and you know i never went looking for particular stories this was important because i never it's and this is because this is what i feel but i never wanted to see that excuse me one story was more important one person's story, excuse me, was more important than another person's story. You know, one person's life is not more important than another life. And um, I never wanted to choose stories depending on what locations, you know, where they'd come from or where they'd been to, because it wasn't about that, because every location is as important in that way. So you end up with this kind of spider work of 22 stories that are all, without without knowing it, interconnected. Mm -hmm. Some are quite closely connected now, but, you know, at the time weren't connected in that way. So it ended up as storytelling, but storytelling still through this kind of documentary landscape approach. So the work kind of built up, you know, as it went along. So it was following, is meeting with each one of these 22 people, um, listening to their story for you know, three, four, five hours, um, really hearing what they what they told me on the day, um, then making a portrait. So, yeah, I, you've answered some of my questions there that I had about this project because I, I was, I knew that there were... 40,000 locations and you had 22 stories and you'd written on the on your website about the different locations forming a pathway to genocide and I, I was wondering how you put all of that into a narrative in a relatively small book and, and you've well I think you've, you've spoken to that so I'm not yeah. gonna but I, I did want to circle back to 
you were saying about the location you were in, the first location you were in, yeah. and you ended up talking to one of the survivors who had been a child in that location. I have to ask a follow-up. How was that meeting? Well, yes. Yeah, so, so um, you know, I, I, I kind of said that I never wanted to find people who were, you know, particular stories, etc. And I never looked for anyone. I never looked for one of these children from that camp in Rousseau. Mm-hmm. But I always wondered what it would be like. And then, um, so that was in uh, May 2015 when I visited that first location. And then about two years ago, kind of late 2018, 2019, my cousin from Switzerland, the one who works with the Holocaust survivors, got in touch with me and said, Mark, I've been um, contacted by a family in America whose mother um, or grandmother grandmother was a child survivor from this camp in the southwest of France um, because they'd seen the work I do and they're doing some research into their family history. Um, and so we've been discussing things and I told them about your work and they said that they'd be very happy to talk with you about it. Mm. So, you know, two months later I was in New York talking to what one of these children who had been through that camp mm-hmm. um, and had then escaped um, on her own and crossed over the, the border, you know, through the mountains into Switzerland and survived that way. So, you know, it was, and all these stories have been amazing and, you know, they've all come to me in very different ways, you know, which has been wonderful. There was another one, um, it was in 2016, I was um, in northern Germany, just in, in on a hill outside a, a well-known concentration, you know, camp called Dachau, and on this hill, which was a mass grave, um, it was a mass grave because the Germans had, they'd run out of uh, of coal and wood to burn the bodies, you know, the people they were murdering in the camp. So they just put their bodies on this hill, um, and there was, you know, this mass grave. This grave was found, and then it's it's now a cemetery. Um, and that someone on the wall had put a kind of homemade plaque. It was like an A4 sheet, you know, that was laminated and attached to the wall. So very much a homemade memorial to their grandfather there. And I remember I'd kind of looked at the information on this sheet and read it, and I'd, I'd kind of made some photographs of the area around and had this plaque kind of in the corner of one of the photographs. And, uh, you know, I, I did a small bit of research and spoke to the, one of the family members involved. Um, and, you know, they were interested in their story and they were interested in the work I was doing. But they, they didn't want me at that time, you know, when I came across this, they didn't want me to use their story or to tell, not to use, or sorry, the wrong words, to, to tell their grandfather's story in my book because they were still searching for that story themselves. Mm-hmm. So that conversation just, you know, petered out. Um, and it wasn't something I pushed at all because it was very important that I only ever wanted to listen to people who wanted to speak to me. It was never like, please let me speak to you, let me speak yeah. to you. It was always if someone approached me or someone was given to me or came to me or I was put in touch with someone. And mm-hmm. then about three years later, I got a, a message pop up in Messenger on Facebook and it was a continuation of that conversation from three years ago. You know, saying that Mark, we had, um, you know, we, we never finished our conversation. <laughs> and yeah, that's how, that's how the conversation started again. And then, um, you know, I kind of, this was, I'd done 21 stories by that point. Um, and the funding had run, run dry. And I explained to someone that, you know, let me see, I'll see if I can find some more money so that I can come to um, to Amsterdam, you know, to Holland, the Netherlands, excuse me, where she lives. And if she, you know, now that she wants me to, you know, she's happy to share her story with me and her family story, that, you know, I could do that. And then about 10 minutes later, I got another message saying, Mark, don't worry, I'm flying to Bristol tomorrow. And I'll see you on Bath on Wednesday. Wow. And so she flew to the UK to tell me the story of her grandfather in that way. So mm-hmm. that's how that 20 second story came around. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's been incredible how these stories, you know, the first story was my own family story. And then the second one was a, 
a connection and a friend of my, my mother's. Um, mm -hmm. But each, each story has kind of come to me via either the previous story or a conversation I've had on a bus, you know, talking to someone about the work mm -hmm. I'm making and they worked with someone who worked with survivors, etc. Mm -hmm. So it's been, you know, I've ne whilst I've, I've never gone searching for, I had always hoped to, in some way to, to include a story of that first location I've been to, but mm -hmm. because the way I wanted to work, I'd never looked for it, but then it found me, which was lovely. So that's why it's 22. It's, it was never a number that I had, you know, but coincidentally, the, the, the press that I've made to sell publishers books is called two and two press, which comes from the number 22. Okay. And it just purely coincidentally happens that this work has 22 stories in as well. So, you know, there's always yeah. these, there's these connections. There's a lot of stuff like that. A lot of making the work, these kind of coincidences happened on. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in fate necessarily, but I do believe now after making this work that if you put yourself, you know, into a space, then these potential meetings and things will happen, which they did throughout the making of the work. I, you know, I, I got access to places and made photographs that I never dreamt I'd be able to make purely by happening to be, you know, in outside an apartment in Lviv in Western Ukraine at 11.15 on a random Tuesday. Mm -hmm. you know, where I'd meant to be there six months earlier and then three months yeah. earlier and then a month earlier and then the day before. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's incredible how that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think if you're doing the right thing, then the things, good things will come to you. Yeah, I, exactly. I, think you I think you are doing that. Um, I think it's so powerful to personalize this history because when we talk about the numbers of people murdered in this, it's unfathomable, really. It's hard to really get around it. But from, from what I've read about this section of history... Um, I was reading a book by uh, I think it's Edith Eager um, who was uh, in Auschwitz at some point when she was a young woman it's it's just so powerful that those kind of eyewitness accounts um, and it changed I, I would say reading that book and another book around the same time changed me for sure I was wondering what impact or what how you've been changed through the process of making The Wounded Landscape um, hugely, you know, in, in, for a single word answer, it's, you know, it, all, all the things that my, you know, my mother and my, my cousin warned isn't the right word, but, you know, um, told me I would, would come across and could potentially happen, you know, have happened in that way. But it, I, I see it as a positive thing, you know, it's like, um, the, the places, you know, the, the people I've sat across from and listened to their stories, you know, when, when they shared their, their stories with me. You know, and these are, you know, there's these words that people use like you know, unimaginable and impossible and things like that, but they're not unimaginable because we have to, we have to imagine them. They're not impossible because they happened. Um, they're not things that happened in another lifetime because they happened within our generations, you know. Mm -hmm. They're not things that happened in another part of the world because they happened on our doorstep. Um, yeah. They're not things that happened because they were done by monsters. They were done by you know, men and women, just like you and me. Um, mm -hmm. And all, you know, every every word I've heard and then every location I, I photographed at with these words in my head, you know, has affected me hugely. And, you know, these these 22 people I've met, you know, will, will never leave my mind. Um, the things I've, the places I've seen connected to the stories I've been told will, will never leave my mind and stuff like that. But, you know, that that's the, that's the role I accepted. You know, when, when I took on this piece of work, um, that I knew these things would happen, and I knew that they have a, a powerful impact on me. Um, 
but you know, I'm in I I've also known throughout the whole time, you know, so, you know, I, I've often made work whilst crying, you know, because of, because of what I know at these, mm -hmm. you know, these locations are strong anyway, but when you have a personal story connection from it, it becomes even stronger. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, every time I came back, I went on like 45 trips or so, I think to make the work. And every time I'd come back two or three days later, I'd be in my car driving somewhere and some completely unconnected random piece of music would come on. And for whatever reason, the kind of music would, would tug at an emotion and a memory. And I'd kind of have to stop the car because I'd, you know, I'd break down in tears based on what I'd seen and what I'd visually seen and then connecting that to the, the person I then sat with, you know, like a, a meter away across the room and we'd held hands and they tell me these stories. And, you know, when you, you put, you can personalize things that has a much deeper impact on you. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, you know, I've, I've also never lost sight of the fact of how lucky I am that I can freely, you know, go to these places today and I can make my work freely and I can come back and I can tell people about them. So I've, I've never lost sight of how lucky I am. As, a, as an individual state to be able to make this work in that way. So whilst, you know, it's deeply affected my life and it will never leave me, it's, that's the only way to make a piece of work like this, you know. And that's what I realised standing on that hill in the southwest of France, that I couldn't stand objectively at a distance, but I had to put my, not put myself in these places because you can't do that, but I had to involve myself directly within this history and within this landscape, you know, to be able to make proper work in that way, that, you know, that would... Um, powerfully yet still sensitively tell these individual stories but you know like you say you know the individual story that helps um, humanize you know this this numbers you know when when we we're told about 10 you know 10,000 or 100,000 or 6 million etc it's very easy to see it as a as a figure without the faces yeah so to individualize it was really important but at the same time not to make it only about this individual 22 mm -hmm. people because it's not just 22 people it was six million etc people so it's mm -hmm. that that kind of back and forth between that number and the individual in that way so you, yeah you know it's it's there it's in my mind it's in my memory it's in my heart it's there forever but you know it's okay i'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to take those things in and stuff like that you know i won't say it hasn't been hard but it's it's hard because it's something i chose to do and i'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to take it in that way to have the privilege to make the yeah, choice completely. to do that yeah, yeah i get you um where can people find your books and support your work um so it's all the the books i make are all sold directly through my website now which is markwilson.co.uk so it's mark with a c obviously yeah. um, for that yeah. and then within that there's information about each project i do and then there's um within the project there's links to the book there's also like a book and print sale page so um, the Lost Hand and Travelog are available, and then A Wounded Landscape is kind of in production at the moment. So that, um, I mean, it's available obviously for pre-sale stuff like that at the moment, which has okay. done the pre-sales have done really well through a Kickstarter. I've pre-sold about seven hundred copies already of that. So. Yeah, I have no doubt that it will go really well. So I'll put links in the show notes where That's listeners great. can find that, and I hope everybody goes and checks that out. Okay, it's it's a bit of a hard transition, but we're going to talk about gear now, um, if you don't mind. If you dive into your camera bag, you mentioned working with 5.4 camera. Is yeah. that your kind of go-to or depends on the work you're doing? Yeah, completely. Um, it's a funny thing. I'm very un, I'm both very unprecious and completely precious about, about the cameras I use uh -huh. um, in that I, I don't have a specific camera type that I'll use for my whole life. I very much choose a particular camera to go with the kind of work so for the last stand mm -hmm. it was all large format because that's what the work needed um a wounded landscape has been a real combination actually of both film and digital and both medium and smaller format work and stuff like that 
so you know my my camera band bag at, at different times it's quite hard to own all this equipment um you know i you know it can be you know I, my the camera kind of if i'm shooting medium format it's the hasselblad because that's what i love to use mm -hmm. and if i'm shooting 5.4 it can be anything really depending whether you want a fill camera or a small camera um if i'm shooting with a smaller format camera i've got a really nice kind of leica rangefinder um and i've used kind of film leicas in the past but i'm now using a digital leica because it's it's just what works well and you know within this a winded, a winded landscape i i used a range of cameras depending on what i was photographing so the work has been photographed kind of half on film and half digitally, half with a medium format, half with a small format camera. Um, some with tripod, some without tripod. Yeah. I remember when I was um, quite early on in the project, I was photographing in Paris and I kind of was carrying my tripod around with me and I ended up hiding it in a bush for two days. So I didn't want to carry it around the city with me because it was kind of <laughs> quite big. And that's why I started shooting handheld there. And I, I really enjoyed shooting handheld, but when I shoot handheld, I still photograph very slowly you know almost as if i'm on a tripod i still have complete care and consideration whether i'm working with a 5.4 or with a rangefinder i have complete care for every corner of my viewfinder mm -hmm. yeah and my frame in that way and stuff. um so you said at the beginning that you you'd like to take less photos but take more time on them i think that is that's just such an amazing way to go about it because and it's kind of counter um intuitive i think you want to well, for me anyway, you feel like you're going to shoot more and more and more. Maybe that's just my anxiety talking. Yeah. But I think, well, the, the using the large format camera undoubtedly plays into that tactic, right? So what do you think is a benefit? What can people gain by slowing down, taking less photographs, but taking more time to take the photographs? Um, well, it's simply, you know, I, th I think people saw you have to make work a lot and you have to take a lot of photographs um, because it's, it should be enjoyable, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's the idea of just simply taking more time over each frame. Um, you know, it's it's a it's mathematics. If you if you take sixty photographs in one minute, which a lot of people do, you're taking one second over every photograph. Mm -hmm. If you take ten photographs in one minute, you've got six seconds for each photograph. If you take three, you have twenty seconds. And you know, my, um, this is just me, but I'm of the belief that those three photographs, those three frames, you may make in a minute should or should all be really good you know or should be very close to being good whereas if you're taking 60 in a minute you know there's there's less chance of them all being good you may be you, it's you know luck or skill there'll be one that's in there that should be good as well but you know that that's how i like to work and there's you know photographs that will listen to this photographers excuse me they'll listen to this and they'll be no you know shoot as much as you can take as many pictures as you can and that's as valid an answer as well it's just that mm -hmm. the way i like to work i like to slow everything down so you know, even if I'm shooting handheld with Malika, for instance, I, I won't photograph much because I like mm -hmm. to study, you know, the frame. I like to study the frame before I bring the camera to my eye. I like to study the frame when the camera's to my eye and breathe and make the photograph. But I'm lucky mm -hmm. because in, I can do that because of the kind of work I make. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was mm -hmm. doing work where it's more fast paced and there's continual movement mm -hmm. and you have to photograph quicker. But so, you know, for me, that's what works and stuff like that. But it's... You know, I think that even if someone's photographing those 60 frames a minute, you can still see every frame that you're making. Mm -hmm. You won't remember each one, but, mm -hmm. you know, you still have to take that care and consideration. So there's perhaps less down to chance and luck and more down to, you know, your the choices that you make as a photographer in that way. Mm -hmm. With your shooting interiors as well, work-wise, yeah. that's very methodical, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that what what equipment do you use when you're shooting like a kitchen or an interior? Yeah, so my commercial work is it's like DSLRs, but it's all with shift lenses, etc. In that way, so right. you know the 
you know, the way my kind of photographic background and education essentially came out, it was like a combination of 5.4 or, you know, medium format, but always tripod-based film for my mm -hmm. project work and always tripod-based DSLRs for my commercial work. So, they, you know, they, they kind of went hand in hand. You know, but very different subjects, obviously, but the kind of working methodology is quite similar that it's it's slow and it's considered and it's you know checking the corner of each frame etc in that way mm -hmm. yeah i get that i'd love to talk to you about the interiors we just don't have time I, it's been on my list to ha have an interiors photographer on the podcast for ages <laughs> um because i really I, it's one of the things i really enjoyed doing um but maybe maybe we can talk about that another day but yeah sorry. um let me ask you the the question that i must ask is there anything in your camera bag you're just never using um, I use my light meter less and less. I okay. have to say, um, you know, if I'm shooting with that's about a large format, obviously you have to, but because at the moment I'm using like a, an M240 Leica, so I'm kind of using the light meter in there more and more. Okay. So. Okay. So there's nothing I don't use, but I think that's the thing that I use less and less these days. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have a round called Double Exposure where I ask about my favorite picture of yours and then I throw it back to you to. Let me know if there's one photograph or experience or memory that you have from your photography journey. Well, there was a shot of a lady called Rita Weiss, or Weiss, I don't know if I'm saying it right. I, I just wondered what the story is on that image. Are you, are you okay to share that? How long have you got? Yeah, just however long you've got. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's one of the stories, you know, in, in the wounded landscape. Um, and it's... It's probably the one that's, you know, I, I feel comfortable saying this is potentially the one that's touched me most, I think, of all the stories. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because of, you know, the meeting. So I met her, I was introduced to her via that bus journey that I spoke to you about. So I was um, in Israel on a bus going from Tel Aviv to a kibbutz in the far north of Israel. And this was following the story of a man called Eugene, who I'd been introduced to by um, a woman who... I think I first spoke to her about 12 years ago <laughs> about my, my work at The Last Stand. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, we've had kind of conversations since then. And then when she heard about the work I was doing with the Wounded Landscape, she, she said that she had come across this individual called Eugene who'd lived in uh, both Israel and, and America. And I went to meet him in both places, actually, both in Jerusalem and then uh, in kind of Florida as well. Um, and then I was in Israel on a bus journey following his story. And I just got talking to, as you do on bus journeys, talking to the girl that was sat next to me. And she was asking me what I was doing in the country, so I, you know, kind of explained to her. And I've got this little sort of box of prints, the seven by five inch black box of prints of the work that I've been carrying around me for the last six years. So, I, you know, which I show people. So it's a really nice way to explain what you're doing. Um, okay. And I told her what I was doing, and she told me that she, um, until last year, she had worked for a group that helps with Holocaust survivors in Israel. And would I be interested in talking with any of them, you know, for my work? And I said that, yeah, you know, if she wanted to. To see if any were interested in talking with me, that would be fantastic. Um, and that's how I got in touch with Rita. Mm -hmm. um, and then the following year, I was back in Israel following kind of three more stories, you know, with which Rita was one of them. And, and you know, we had an amazing afternoon. I spent, I think, it was about four hours in, in her flat in Tel Aviv. And, uh, you know, we ate, you know, wonderful cake, um, drank huge amounts of coffee and, and tea. Mm -hmm. And her daughter was there as well. And Rita told me, you know, her story. And, um, you know, she was 90, uh, 94 when I met her. Um, and, you know, it was an amazing experience. You know, and I, I basically, I sat there, you know, transfixed, um, touched, smiling, 
in tears for four hours um, whilst listening to this, you know, this one woman tell me her life story. And, you know, she told me everything from when, you know, she was like a four-year-old all the way through her life and, you know, particularly through her experiences during the war. And, you know, they were stories filled with love and stories filled, you know, with families being torn apart, um, you know, trauma, tragedy, terror, death, you know, everything, everything imaginable. And then, you know, even though I don't particularly like this word, but everything unimaginable to most of us as well. You know? Uh, the, you know, things that happened to family, things that happened to her, and, you know, events that happened to people around her and how, you know, how close she was to death on so many occasions. And, you know, the moment when she gave up, you know, and she was, she thought she was about to die again, you know, for that, for that final time. And it, it was, it was doubly touching because her daughter was there and, you know, there were, there were moments of incredible tenderness between Rita and her daughter whilst she was telling me the story things that she'd obviously told her daughter before and her daughter knew about, but that were still so touching at the time, you know, that I mean, and I remember this really clearly that there was a moment where her daughter went over and just kind of sat by Rita's feet and put her hand on her mother's knee. And I remember thinking how beautiful it was. And, and I also, you know, I was listening to what she was saying, but I was also as a photographer thinking that's such an amazing visual, but I, I never once thought about taking the picture because it was such a tender moment between the two of them. Um, and yeah, we became good friends and I spent, you know, the next day with her daughter and her daughter kind of told me more stories and these kind of Auschwitz recipe stories that are in the book as well. And it, it had a real kind of, you know, profound, it was, it was one of the earlier stories of people I'd met as well. And, it, you know, for, for whatever reason, it had a very profound and kind of deep effect on me that way. And then I found out about a year and a half ago that Rita had died. She had passed away as well. So, um, yeah, that's the, the story of Rita. So that, you know, of, of all, you know, there's no kind of level of, depth or greatness or sadness or trauma between these stories but you know for whatever reason it is as human beings all touch you on different levels and other people i've met have, have touched yeah. me on a, an equal level but some of the different types of emotions but i remember that one being one of real you know kind of love and sadness at the same time i think mm -hmm. for for putting like rita's story into the book so there's a portrait um, could you photograph some of her, um, some of her belongings, uh, or artifacts from from back in those days, and tie that into a location as well? Is, is that how you put it together in the book, or how does that work? You know, with, with each of the twenty-two stories, there's there's a portrait, um, and in some cases, there's you know some an old photograph or a, an old kind of piece of paperwork that I photographed as well, but not in every one because I didn't want to be systematic about it. Um, and then those aren't necessarily tied into a specific location, but they're just within that story in that way. But, you know, I, you know, the, the portraits are beautiful to make because, like I said, I always make them after we've had these conversations. So, you know, this is after. Mm. Okay. And, you know, these, you know, these people are they're old, you know, and most of them feel or say or, you know, their, their children who are there say, you know, maybe half an hour because my mother's tired and my father's tired. But, you know, they talk. And I, yeah. I remember Rita very clearly. So, you know, she was born in um, you know, kind of Transylvania, so Hungary, Romania. Um and her, you know, her first language was in no way English. You know, she she spoke Romanian, she spoke some Hungarian, she spoke Hebrew, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but she, I remember her telling me very clearly when we met that she was going to talk to me in English because she wanted me to hear mm -hmm. everything she was telling me at that very moment. She didn't want me, her daughter, to have to okay. translate everything, or she didn't want me to wait until I could transcribe and have someone translate her, you know, her conversation with me. She okay. wanted me to hear what she was saying at the time. Which was an amazing mm -hmm. thing in that way. Yeah. And just 
on a technical, how do you shoot the portraits? Do you shoot, which camera are you using for the portraits? Um, so that was uh, that was shot with my Hasselblad. You know, okay. and I remember it very clearly. It was after four hours, and she was tired. And I said, you know, and I remember always thinking that, you know, I should get the portrait done earlier before you know, these people yeah. come too tired. But the last thing you want to do is stop someone talking when they're yeah. talking. So you know, my, at the end, my comments, the question would always be, you know, are you okay if I do the portrait now? And I knew fully well that every time the answer could be, I can't do that now. Yeah. And then I would just hope that they would say, come back tomorrow, because you know, I'm on yeah. the other side of the world. But every single time, apart from one, because you know they had a meeting, they were like, no, let's, I want to do this now. Let's do this now. And you know, and the portrait was then, like I said, an extension of the conversation we'd had. An extension. I used to, I always like to take the portrait as an extension of my listening. You know, to in this case, Rita. So it's you know, it's a slow process. So, you know, we we you know, we then spoke of other things. You know, we spoke about my life in the UK, whilst I'm setting the tripod up, or whilst I'm loading the film, yeah. and yeah. this and that. And th they've always, by that point, they'd always seen some of the previous portraits I'd made, so they knew the kind of work I was making in that way. Mm -hmm. And you know, you'll you'll notice that every portrait in the book, there's a, they're all looking at me, which is mm -hmm. which is what I like, anyways. You know, in portraits. But it's very important that there's that direct visual connection between mm -hmm. Rita in this case and the reader. You know, yeah. Me when I was making a portrait, but you, for instance, you know, when you read the book, when you see the pictures, so you know that you're looking at someone who's having that conversation with in that way. And you know, the, yeah. the portrait was a slow experience, and I pressed it. You know, I, you know, Hasselblad's made that beautiful noise, and I, I think I made five frames because that's all you need. Yeah. You know, and they were five very slow frames. Yeah, I was going to ask if you shot that on a tripod. Yeah, or well, tripod, no, no, all yeah. available light stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, and it's it's such a beautiful portrait, and um, because of the trust, I think that you've built up with each other through the long conversation yeah. that you've had, it's an engaged and fully connected yeah, portrait, you. which is, is so important. Yeah, um, that, that trust is kind of everything, I think. You know, yeah. you know, it's. it's you don't always get that much time to make a portrait, especially if it's a commercial work. But even in project-based work, you don't always have that time. So, you know, I felt really lucky that, you know, we, we had that conversation, we had that time, and then they were happy to give me extra time. But, you know, mm -hmm. the, the reason that trust came about is because they they were comfortable with me because I explained to them. One, I explained to them what I was doing, but I also showed them what I was doing, you know, with this little mm -hmm. box of prints, and that made such a big difference. Yeah. I think you're going about the work in such a respectful way and you're obviously making a point not to be exploitative or pushy in any way. I, I think that's that's playing well for you as well. Um, so usually I throw it back to you to, to tell me a story, but I think that, that really covers it yeah, for that round. That's probably the one I would have chosen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, if you've got another minute, I finish with a quick fire round, which I call Motor Drive. Um, so if you're up for a bit of quick fire yeah, of action, yeah. cool. Okay, wide angle or telephoto? Neither. <laughs> I don't know if you've had that okay. answer before, but yeah. <laughs> awkward silence. Um, okay, expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? A corner of my shirt. Okay. Um, okay, this is about uh, things to do in Bath. Roman baths or Bath Abbey? Uh. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying neither to all these things, but if I have to choose, uh, Roman baths. Okay. What's the best thing to do in bath then? Right now, play cricket with my kid. <laughs> Good answer. Okay. What was the last great book, movie, series, album you experienced? In the Shadows of the Pyramids by Laura L. Tantaway. Okay. It's a photography book? Uh, yes. 
Okay. And so what kind of work is that? Is it a documentary? Yes, a documentary about the revolution in Egypt. Okay, right. Okay. I don't know. What's a weird thing I can find in your camera bag? There's probably, um, if I looked at it, there's, there's probably a very small yellow label with a number on it, which would be from a ship that I did some work on over two summers a couple of years ago, where I went onto a ship first kind of traveling around the South Pacific okay. and then traveling around Japan for a couple of weeks. And I just gave lectures for three or four days. And when you gave your laundry to be cleaned in the ship, which everyone did, they came back with these little yellow numbers on. <laughs> and I remember one of them had peeled off and I remember finding it in my camera bag. And um, there's a small number of British photographers who you'll come across that will know exactly what those labels mean, like John Tonks and Lottie Davis and Stuart Friedman, who have all been on the same ship giving lectures. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's probably cool. the strangest thing, I think. It's not there anymore, but you know. Okay, cool. I haven't had that answer before. So yeah. um, last one, when do you feel at peace with the universe? Um, when I'm with my wife. So every day these days <laughs> good um thanks so much mark i'm so grateful i wish we i mean we, we talked a long time there's so much more we could talk about i really encourage the listeners to check out and support your work um i think it's really important and um yeah thanks a lot yeah oh, my pleasure nice to meet you sir thank you so much for listening go to markwilson.co.uk to buy his books and prints and follow him on Instagram at Mark Wilson Photo. That's Mark with a C. If you enjoy this episode, check out my conversations with documentary photographers George Steinmetz, and you'll probably love my chat with Ula Lohman. That's all. Take care. Enjoy your photography. I'll see you out there.